electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Thank you very much, Scott. Hi, everybody. I'm Kelly Evans. Here's what's ahead on The Exchange. Markets are trying to start the year with gains, the NASDAQ especially. Some are concerned that valuations are too high coming off a strong year. But is the market actually cheaper now? We've got the numbers. Bond yields are popping, though, and what started as a small breakout this morning is gathering pace as we move through the afternoon. Again, ironic, the NASDAQ is outperforming. We're going to look at the global bond sell-off and more trends to watch this year with Morgan Stanley's chief strategist. And analysts placing their bets, we're looking at four top picks for the year across four different sectors and getting our panel to weigh in. The first rapid fire of the new year is coming up. But we begin with Dom Chu on the markets way over there. All right, way over there. I I miss being next to you over on the other side of the studio right now, but with our protocols in place with COVID, it's a different story. Still, though, I get to be in front of my favorite part of the wall here to show you that the markets are generally positive right now. But just to give you an idea of where we stand, the Dow Industrial is up about 55 points. It's not massive, but it's still green. The S&P 500, 47.74, the last trade there, up about eight points at the highs of the session. We were up roughly about 29 or so points and down eight points at the lows of the session. To give you some context around the trading range so far today, we have seen negative territory. But to Kelly's point, the Nasdaq composite up 111 points, 15,756 the level there, up about three quarters of 1%, the real outperformer in trading so far. One place we're keeping a close eye on is the yield picture, specifically with benchmark U.S. 10-year Treasury note yields. Currently, just a hair above 1.62%. That's towards the higher end of the range that we've seen over the course of the last couple of months. Remember, at one point, we were down below 1.4% just around that Thanksgiving holiday or so. So keep an eye on that. Those rising yields yielding at least some positive results for the banks. One of the best performing sectors out there, the S&P 500 financials. Take a look at J.P. Morgan Chase. Bank of America is up 4% right now. Citigroup up 5%. Wells Fargo up nearly 6%. And 2.5% gains from Morgan Stanley on the investment bank side as well. And of course, the stock of the day, best performer in the S&P so far to really kick off a new year, Tesla, the electric vehicle maker. We know the story by now. Better than expected deliveries in all of last year, especially in the fourth quarter. That's helping to drive Tesla shares. 11.73 spot 06, the last trade there. That's up 11%, $116 and change. And over the last year, a 66% gain. Kelly will keep an eye on Tesla. One of the main reasons why consumer discretionary is an outperforming sector today. Kel, back over to you. All right, Dom, thanks. With the S&P surging 27% last year, outperforming the Dow and NASDAQ, many analysts are wondering if it's gotten ahead of itself or priced to perfection. But if you look at the actual P.E., the price to earnings ratio, the S&P is trading at 21 times now versus almost 23 times a year ago. So what should you buy if stocks are actually less expensive now? I guess you buy everything. Joining me is Mark Avalone. He's president of Potomac Wealth Advisors. Must be snowy where you are, Mark. It is. It is. And and it's quite nice, actually. Yeah, it is beautiful when you don't really have to deal with it because you can work from home and all the rest of it. So I am very curious for your thoughts on the market. What does this P.E. say to you? Well, I think the P.E. is is just one measure of a lot of different variables. It's a fair metric. We want to look at it. 
we're also wondering why the PE has dropped and what's why some of the expectations have dropped. And we think it's a lot of it is because we're going to get less Fed stimulus. As we know, the, the, the bond buying is reduced. They may raise rates. We could talk about that. But we're going to get a lot less federal stimulus. And to underestimate how Congress has played a role in this rally would be foolish because they've literally put money in people's pockets, increased consumer demand, spending. That's what's spiraling this inflation hype. So when the when the federal government's going to pull back on stimulus, the repercussions are going to be real. And I think that's one of the reasons growth will moderate at least towards the second half of this year. But does that leave you bearish or bullish on the markets? Modestly optimistic, expecting high single-digit returns for the year. Several reasons for that. Earnings are still strong. The consumer is still strong. And, and we're also looking at no alternative for investors. I have to put money to work today. And to think about putting it in long-dated bonds and, and treasuries and high-quality credit puts me at an extreme risk for interest rate hikes. And since interest rates will likely tick up, we don't think they'll be out of control, but even a modest move in interest rates can hurt bond prices. So we're going to remain invested as many investors are. It's the old Tina trade that has not gone away. What do you make of the spike in bond yields start off the year? Again, spike, relatively speaking, we're still around 160 mm -hmm. on the 10 year. I, I think it's going to move back up to that 1.7 range and stay there for a while. If we get north of two, we think that's the hard ceiling. Look, as this as the Fed reduces bond uh, purchases. And then if they raise rates at all, we're, it's going to have a counter cyclical effect to the economy. So will higher energy prices. So will inc the increased regulations we're seeing. So are potentially higher taxes. Uh, this supply bubble will work itself out. And we think that the, the inventories that are then on hand, all of that will put a negative, albeit a modest one, uh, impact onto economic growth. And we're going to see GDP by the end of the year moderate into the three, maybe a 4% on the upper range. But it's going to measure the economy's growth. And we think that interest rates will spike up to maybe the 2% range, but they're going to hit a ceiling there. And the Fed may even lose its nerve at that point if the economy's growth slows enough. Why do you like Truist and Sandy Spring Bank? And I'm curious what your view on inflation is if you're in the camp that thinks growth is going to be moderating. Well, we, we like financials and we like banks and we like regional banks for the reasons I've been discussing. A modest rise in rates and a moder moderately strong economic growth scenario is almost ideal for banks. Remember, banks lose money when people don't pay back their loans. If, if the economy is strong enough and credit defaults are low, that's always a boost for banks. You add rising interest rates, it helps their operating profits and their margins widen. Those are two huge factors. Then we look at banks that are well-managed in strong areas of the country. Both of the names you mentioned are in the Washington, D.C. area in a big way and or the southeast like Truist. And they're going to have favorable demographics. They're having economic growth. They're the ones seeing populations increase. So that's why we're favorable on banks. And it's consistent with our outlook on modest inflation and modest interest rate hikes. You seem to think that the high multiple names could face some more downside. What, what are you looking at and when are you going to strike? Well, we've talked about that for a while now, that where we want to be in technology is cash flowing technology. And we've also talked about how a slight rise in rakes will not hurt big mega tech cap that has strong cash flow. And that has proven to be the case. And we've also said higher rates hurt unproven companies. And that's also 
proven to be the case. We still think it's too early to jump back in to a lot of the names that got pummeled, whether it's a, you know names like a Teladoc and, and Zoom. And, and you could see that today even. Some of the, we're surprised that some of the cloud companies are getting hit. Yeah. That's a sector we think we're going to see more CapEx spending and potential growth. But some of these companies aren't as proven. And I think proven technology is where investors should be. And I think we should continue to wait to see more of a firmer bottom before going into the speculative names. All right, Mark, thanks very much for your time today. We appreciate it. Good Mark Avalone with Potomac Wealth Advisors. Let's move along to the latest on the COVID front. The FDA is expanding eligibility for booster shots as the number of cases in the U.S. hits a new high. Meg Terrell is here with the latest. Meg, are they just expanding it for the Pfizer shot? So far, yes. The Pfizer vaccine now cleared by the FDA for kids ages 12 to 15 as a booster. Uh, another change the FDA made today also applies only to folks who got Pfizer originally is that they are now eligible for a booster as soon as five months after the second dose compared with six months. For Moderna, it's still six months. The FDA explaining that by essentially saying they had data for shortening Pfizer and they don't yet have the data for shortening Moderna. Uh, they also cleared third doses for kids who are immunocompromised between the ages of five and 11. Still no word on exactly when a vaccine for even younger children under five will be available. We know that there had been a delay for Pfizer in that, and so a lot of us are still waiting on that. Uh, this as cases are reaching astronomic highs, averaging more than 400,000 per day in the U.S. right now, and you're getting that signature Omicron vertical lineup on the case count right now. Hospitalizations are rising, but not at the same clip as cases, and deaths have held relatively steady around 1,200 per day, between 1,200 and 1,300 um, as of right now. So there's hope looking at South Africa and also through some new biological data coming out about the Omicron variant itself that this is milder. However, there are still a lot of warnings about the potential to overwhelm hospitals, some of which we are already seeing right now. Of course, we pay attention to cases because that makes a huge difference in staffing hospitals, being able to staff flights. Uh, Dr. Fauci talking about the pushback to the CDC's recommendation to be able to end isolation after five days without testing. He suggested yesterday that might change. Here's what he said. You're right. There has been some concern about why we don't ask people at that five-day period to get tested. That is something that is now under consideration. The CDC is very well aware that there has been some pushback about that. Looking at it again, there may be an option in that, that testing could be a part of that. And I think we're going to be hearing more about that in the next day or so from the CDC. So, Kelly, we'll wait to see if we hear from the CDC about that. At the same time, though, a big problem is just getting that test. It's really difficult right now. Yeah. Kelly? Two practical questions on Omicron, Meg, for those of us who've just uh, had it. Number one, are we likely to get it again? Is it like the cold or the flu in that regard where you might contract some version of it again? And number two, are we spreaders? Can we spread it to others? Well, if you are no longer infected, you shouldn't be able to spread it to others at this point. That question about when you could get Omicron again, how long your immunity should last, that is a key question here. And we just don't know. We're going to have to wait to see the data as to how long the protection will last. And it'll likely come from areas like South Africa first, which went through the infection first. Um, but we don't know how long lasting the protection will be. One good piece of news, though, it does look like Omicron protects against Delta. Hmm. Um, so that 
is good news, potentially suggesting it could edge the other variant out. Interesting. All right. Meg, thanks as always for that recap. Meg Terrell with the very latest on the COVID front. Coming up, will 2022 be the year of the divided states of America taking center stage? We'll look at the nation split and what it means for policy and the economy with a top strategist next. Plus, shares of Tesla soaring to start the year after posting their first month of losses since May. We'll dig into the automaker's record delivery numbers and CEO Elon Musk's ambitious nine-year sales goal. Tesla now up 11%. And as we head to break, here's the Dow heat map with pretty evenly split there. Goldman leading the way. Home Depot, interesting. Big winner of last year. It's lagging. It's the biggest decliner right now. We're back in a moment. This is The Exchange on CNBC. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. The closely divided Congress makes it unlikely any major legislation will pass this year. And my next guest says watch action on the regulatory front instead as a result. On issues like antitrust, bank mergers, crypto and the supply chain, we could see some big moves with stock market impact. Brian Gardner is here. He's the chief Washington policy strategist at Stiefel. Brian, great to have you. Let's start with antitrust. Good afternoon. Happy New Year. Thanks for having me. Um, so, yeah, uh, like you said, um, it's going to be quiet on the congressional front, at least unproductive on the congressional front. But antitrust, the FTC has already been gearing up at looking at the rules for uh, for antitrust laws. And so I think you're going to see uh, more of a push than you've already started to see in 2021. You'll see more of that push in 2022 um, with a couple of sectors probably most in focus, ag, healthcare, pharmaceuticals, financials, social media, tech, um, those are the pro- probably the, and, and transportation as well. Those are probably the primary areas that, that the FTC and the DOJ will, will focus on. Some of those are interesting because we don't talk about them that much, like ag and health and transportation. So uh, at the risk of, again, sidelining them, let's just ask on the tech piece of it, if I'm an investor in Facebook or Amazon or Apple, I mean, what are the big risks you see out there in terms of policy? You know, I, I, I'm not sure that, you know, we're talking about, about breakup, but I, I think the focus of these investigations and policy um, initiatives would be heavy on uh, data security, privacy, consumer rights, uh, that area. So I, I think that um, and, and, I, and I kind of mill that in with antitrust uh, because I, I think the FTC will use its antitrust powers to get into these areas in, in addition to its consumer protection role. So that said, is it 
kind of a big uh, announcements, but not a lot of big market impact kind of year. I mean, let's then broaden it out to all of those topics that you mentioned. Which ones do you think could have the biggest market impact? So, you know, on, on market impact, I, th I think the first reaction a lot of people have is that regulation's bad and stocks are going to sell off. I take a slightly different view in that it raises the barriers of entry. So it locks in the current market and actually protects current market uh, market players, industry players that have built in advantages. So I think that actually the current players actually benefit. There's less of a risk to them um, than, than people perceive. Um, so I, I think people could be surprised across the board by the market reaction. There could be a short-term sell-off, but longer term, I, I think it actually benefits current players. Interesting. So then outside of tech, you mentioned a couple of other areas to watch. What are you hearing in terms of the kinds of actions we could see, whether on health or ag or transportation? Um, so, it, you know, the DOJ and FTC have already gone down the road uh, of, of uh, looking at a couple of mergers in the railroad space uh, last year. I think you're going to see more of that um, in financials. Uh, we talk a lot about banking, but uh, the uh, there was a big uh, merger in uh, in the insurance world uh, with Aon and Willis that was that was blocked. I think you could see more uh, of that, um, you know, kind of pivoting back to financial since I mentioned them, um, I think you're going to see a lot of work outside the FTC, more at the banking regulators of them revising, excuse me, their merger guidelines. And that's going to affect mostly the largest banks. Um, you're going to see more of an emphasis on financial stability. Do Does a larger bank pose a greater risk or how much of a greater risk to the financial system? And then competitiveness issues in line with what the Biden administration had put out earlier in 2021. All right. So then as a final call, Brian, what do you think happens in the midterms? In the midterms, I, I, I think it's an easy call so I'll, uh, on the House. So I'll start there. Uh, I, I think Republicans are really well positioned to, to pick up the House and, and win it back. The Senate's tougher. Um, the Senate's not a um, it's not a national election because only a third of the Senate is running. And it's actually a pretty if you look at the Senate map, it's not that bad for Democrats. So, I mean, I can go through a couple of scenarios where I can actually have Democrats picking up a seat in the Senate, um, but I can also see Republicans winning the Senate. So Senate's too close to call this far out. House is definitely, you know, to the extent that you can say 10 months out, something's definitely going to happen. I feel very confident uh, that Republicans will win the House. All right. We will check in and, uh, and see how that turns. Thank you so much for your time today, Brian. We appreciate it. Thank you, Kelly. Brian Gardner with Stiefel. Still ahead, 13,000 flights canceled in the final week of last year. But airline stocks are off to an auspicious start today. You see a lot of green there on the screen. We'll ask one analyst just what the market is anticipating for the airlines in 2022. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. At Capella University, you'll get support from people who care about your success. From before you enroll to after you graduate, pursue your goals knowing help is available when you need it. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. 
Welcome back to The Exchange, everybody. Stocks are regaining some of their earlier momentum. The Dow's up 94. At the highs, it was up 164. And at the lows, it was down 90. So the Nasdaq still leading the way with a 123-point gain. Positive start for the reopening names today. And Royal Caribbean's new CEO, Jason Liberty, also officially takes the helm today. Richard Fain stepping down from the position but staying on as the board's chair. RCL up 5%. The other cruise line's up about 6%. The casino's also outperforming. Win Las Vegas Sands, MGM Resorts, all gaining about 1% to 3% today, a little more modest rally. But the stay-at-home stocks are seeing more selling pressure. Peloton, DoorDash, Zoom, all lower today. Not huge amounts, but still 1% or 1.5% declines to kick off the year. And Wells Fargo is higher after Barclays upgraded the stock to overweight. They say it stands to benefit the most from higher rates and see the stock climbing 30% from here. Pretty significant because this company shares just posted their best year since 1997, up 60%. For more on that call, you can go over to CNBC.com slash pro and Wells is up 5.5% today. Now to Frank Holland for a CNBC News update. Hi, Frank. Hey there, Kelly. Happy New Year. Here's what's happening at this hour. Majority Leader Chuck Schumer says the Senate will vote on filibuster rule changes to advance stalled voting legislation. Democrats say the bill is needed to protect democracy in the wake of the January 6th insurrection on Capitol Hill. A settlement between Jeffrey Epstein and one woman who, who accused him of sexual abuse has now been made public. The deal with Virginia Jufrey promised her a $500,000 payment, but the settlement also includes protections from lawsuits filed by Jufrey against other potential defendants. It's not clear yet whether that includes Jufrey's sexual assault lawsuit against Britain's Prince Andrew. And the head coach of the Tampa Bay Buccaneers says wide receiver Antonio Brown did not tell coaches he was injured before leaving in the middle of yesterday's game against the New York Jets. Coach Bruce Arian says Brown made the decision all of his own to walk out of the stadium in a very viral way on your screen right now. On the news, how did it come to this and what Brown is saying about leaving the Bucks? That's tonight at 7 Eastern. That's the very latest, Kelly. Back over to you. I am looking forward to that, Frank. Thank you very much. Coming up here, the first rapid fire of the year, and we are going over some of Wall Street's top picks. We're looking at fast feet, fast food, big oil, and a big bank. Does our panel agree with the street? It's up next on The Exchange. Welcome back, everybody. Let's catch you up on a couple stories that should be on your radar. Today, four big calls from Wall Street for 2022 in this edition of Rapid Fire. Here to help me break down the calls, Nancy Tangler is CEO and CIO of Laffer Tangler Investments. Tim Seymour is CEO of Seymour Asset Management and a CNBC contributor. And Dominic Chu rounds things out for us. Welcome, one and all. All right, our first name is Nike. Guggenheim naming it a top pick in 22, raising their earnings estimates today for the year as well, saying digital investment including the metaverse, could be a key catalyst for a move higher this year. Nike shares up about 18% in 21. Tim, I see you nodding along. You own it. I own it. I love it. Not only is it an iconic brand, it's proven the, the innovation behind the product and, and certainly the, the wow factor, I think. Uh, I think the, the investments that they've made into logistics and ERP, but obviously the DTC business is, uh, you know, the target is 50%. John Donahoe, I think, is the guy that's leading that efficiency, even though, again, we talk about a company that I think is, is out there on the consumer side and continues to have U.S. comps in North America that are blowing away. And, and at least 
giving you a little relief around some concerns around Asia. The problem is, is valuation. And I think if you look at Guggenheim's upgrade, stock's still at 35 times uh, 23. But I, it deserves a premium. And, and I stay there. I love it. Nancy, what do you think about Nike? So I think Nike's done a lot of things right. I agree with uh, Tim. They get about 18.5% of their sales from China, and they've been able to thread that needle uh, very nicely as opposed to some other retailers. That said, um, we don't own it in our Garby portfolios anymore because of valuation. I love the brand. I own it personally. Uh, but I think you have to be sensitive, and and I would I would advise to wait for a pullback. It's it's at 35, I think, is what Tim said for 23. It's at 44 yeah. on 22 earnings and a yield of 0.75, so you're not getting paid much um, on, on in terms of yield premium. And so I, I think there are probably some better places to hang out in the near term. It's one of those stocks, Dom, that makes you go, yeah, that's why it has a high P.E. You know, when it's when it's pretty much a sure thing, you got to pay up for it. <laughs> well, it's not just that. It's the, it's the brand cachet. It's been there for such a long time. And it was something that you mentioned that, that it was a highlight in the note that really caught my attention. It is the metaverse, because after reading the note, I thought about it. In many of the conversations that I've had with investors, traders up and down Wall Street, when we talk about the metaverse, either in in an optimistic or critical way, the one brand that comes up more often than not with regard to who could benefit as a consumer brand from a metaverse play that could be big in the future happens to be Nike. It gets mentioned a lot. So when we talk about the future for Nike, capitalizing on the brand in a world that is like Farmville 2.0 could be something where it could really drive some of that financial performance in the future. But the question, of course, is to Tim and Nancy's point, the valuations. At yeah. These levels. Listen, with Omicron, we're all like looking for a metaverse tomorrow here that we can do a, a TV show in and all be virtually <laughs> at least in the same place. It really is accelerating some of these trends. But let's move along and talk about, I mean, yes, tech is involved here, but McDonald's is very much kind of an old school call. It's a top pick from Piper Sandler here. The analysts are saying the company's size should help it navigate all the labor and commodity problems. According to their survey, consumers are loving the drive through as always. The hamburgers and chicken, all of which McDonald's has a leg up in. Shares were up 25% in 2021, Dom. So kind of a similar story here as to Nike. So I would, I, would, I would say if you're a viewer out there or a listener to us right now, think about when you drive past any fast food chain. Where I live out in the New York metro area, what I've tended to see during the course of the virus pandemic and even as of late, just in the course of the last few months, is a lot of traffic at the drive through and in the parking lots for kind of like the curbside pickup at places like McDonald's. I have not seen as much of that, as much as we talked about the chicken wars, right, between Popeye's, KFC, Wendy's, and everybody else. I haven't seen as much of that traffic there. <clears throat> McDonald's maybe has a position where they can now say that they've driven a lot of the efficiency into their operation around these pandemic operations. And if that is to stay, that could be a big reason why some traders are getting at least a little bit more optimistic about McDonald's in the coming months. Tim, you own McDonald's? I do, and I'm going to make sure I'm not behind Dom on the road because he clearly breaks for McDonald's. And, <laughs> and I, I think you have a case here where the celebrity innovation, the, the, the partnerships with Travis Scott, with, with Saweetie, you, know, you name it, uh, is part of the wow factor. I, McDonald's is cool again. Um, and, and if relative to their peers, they're even claiming ESG scoring, which is not something we always thought about with McDonald's in terms of the quality of the food. But the food has changed. And I think the the other dynamic here is not only are U.S. comps 18 out of the last 20 quarters been outperforming their peer group, but but the the unit growth on the stores. So there was a time where McDonald's needed to close down stores. They're actually opening up in high growth areas. You're actually going to see this as more of a growth company. So add in loyalty, which helps the valuation and, and a stock that did nothing for 18 months. 
started breaking out in October, and I think it's going higher. I am long the name. I keep trying the chicken nuggets, Nancy, but I still don't. I, I'll take Wendy's, but I still can't get on board with McDonald's. What do you think of the name? Uh, we own it. It's one of our largest holdings in our equity income strategy. Pricing power, low price point uh, restaurant. And so that appeals to a much broader universe of, of uh, consumers. But also we're seeing a shift to services spending uh, in, in 2022. So I think all of that benefits. McDonald's got a healthy yield. They grow the dividend. Uh, as, as Tim pointed out, comps are outperforming their peers. And I am intrigued by the ESG score because many years ago, they got a much higher rating uh, on treatment of the animals that they purchased than, than Chipotle did, which is another one of our largest holdings. So I think there's a lot to like about this hmm. name as you go forward. But the stock has not outperformed the market for three years. It's kind of muddled along with the S&P. And it still has a 34 yep. PE. So it's not, you know, it's still up there, even given right. that underperformance. Interesting. All right, we're going to pick fit one more pick and then we're going to throw you guys a curveball. But let's talk about the energy space before we do that. Chevron is the top pick from Mizuho analysts for the energy space this year, although they do think the sector overall is going to outperform again. Exxon did slightly better than Chevron last year, but Mizuho says Chevron's balance sheet is the epitome of capital discipline and offers high exposure to oil prices with lower risk. Nancy, I'm fine with that, but we all know this story and Exxon still had a better year. So I guess that's just because, you know, they can benefit more on the upside, but maybe get hurt more on the downside. Yeah, Kelly, I think that's right. I mean, at the margin in our portfolios, we've been moving away from some of the upstream names where we've made a good deal of money. But we think the majority of the price move in oil has been made, though. We expect oil to continue uh, to, to appreciate uh, in the coming months. So we we put our allocation, we moved marginally into Chevron. Uh, and, and I think it's the best managed of the integrated. It's got a four and a half percent yield. They grow the dividend about in line with earnings, about 4.4 percent annually over the last five years. This is a name that if you're worried about keeping up with inflation um, because real yields are still negative, this is a name you might want to park in. I don't think forever, but certainly for the next 18 months. Tim, do you think energy can have another good year? I do. Uh, look, I, I think energy prices overall, but specifically Brent prices are going higher. This is a function of, of you know, the Biden energy policy is actually very carbon friendly for assets. And so what we've seen is the underinvestment into the sector over the last couple of years. Look, a lot of these companies have cut CapEx dramatically. Um, as noted, Chevron is probably the most efficient in the space. In fact, I would argue that, that Chevron is the company Exxon wants to be. And who would have thought that 10 years ago? But uh, what they've done on cutting CapEx and being efficient and the free cash flow yields here, uh, I think for the whole sector. Remember, integrated oil companies never used to run their businesses for you, the equity investor. I, I actually think they're doing that now. And I think there's a lot of uh, traders in the energy space. I think there are more investors coming in in 21 and 22, excuse me, as we start to realize that the energy sector is for real on being more efficient. And I think they are. All right. Wanna just mention Bank of America was the top pick from Barclays for 2022. They say it's the least exposed to capital markets, which they think is a positive. Uh, but we want to mention, take a look right now at shares of Apple. They are getting very, very close to the $3 trillion mark. Uh, not just the story for last year, obviously. They still haven't hit that level. In fact, uh, we saw analysts like Dan Ives yesterday writing they are going to be the first mega cap tech stock to do that this year. They could achieve it on the first trading day of the year, Dom. 182.35. <laughs> We're about 50 cents away from that mark right now. What was it, like 86 cents yeah. or something like whatever it was? That was the number that we needed to kind of cross over based upon the latest share count. I mean, maybe this is no surprise, right? Given the fact that we've talked about Apple a lot over the course of the last year, what, what's interesting is the kind of tale of two apples that we did talk about last year. In the first half 
of 2021, a severe underperformer, nothing really to write home about, nothing going on in the stock. And then all of a sudden, yeah. in just the last three to four months of the year, it started to take off, off to the races. Just this notion that investors had a dual kind of threat approach to, to, to what was happening with Apple. They could use it as a growth engine for their portfolio. They could also use it as a safety haven for some of their trades in, in, in uncertain times. So I don't know. This is Apple's just a weird thing to watch because you just don't know what's driving it. But it seems to all be positive which just gives me a little bit of pause, I guess. You can still look through the financials, Tim, and understand how it's worth $3 trillion just on kind of a, a soup to nuts, price to earnings, and yet go, wait a minute, we're talking about a $3 trillion company. It was only two or three years ago that we crossed a, a trillion dollars for the first time and wondered in many cases how long that could hold. Because we have our answer. Yeah, it, well, and, and so Dom's point is, I think, just the passive flows into the equity market and the dominant position that Apple holds on a, on a on a weightings basis is part of this move. Um, the part of it that I, I think has been the multiple expansion is also just been around this services business. And I, you know, I think part of the, the call on Wedbush is 100 billion in services revenue uh, by 24. I mean, you know, it's, it's a 30 times uh, sales number just uh, as, a, as a services company right now, if you, if you believe that number without getting all the other stuff. But that the 5G, uh, the, the product cycle, the fact that I think we are still very early in this refresh on the, the, the best brand with, with a billion installed base, you can always own Apple, uh, at least at these valuations in a market that's not cheap. Crazy. Nancy, I'll give you the last word. Yeah, Kelly, we've owned the stock since 2013 and, and, and increasingly became enamored of the uh, services story. Uh, we were buying it when the yield was 3%. So we still own it. We own less than we used to own just from a valuation standpoint. It's, it is uh, fully reflecting its value, but it's a safe name uh, for investors to be invested in, in. And we're at that stage in the cycle where we're shifting to quality and growth, I think, in the coming years. So I, I think you stick with it. If it dips, you, you, continue, you continue to add to it in your portfolio, uh, it's it's hard to argue with it, at least for the near intermediate. Uh, it's almost like as we talk, we're, we're seeing if it can go above 182.52 for those who can't see the screen. And again, the $3 trillion mark is at 182.86. So it does feel imminent. That said, it could take a week. Who knows? I will leave it there, guys. Thank you all so much today. Nancy Tangler, Tim Seymour, and Dominic Thank Chu for this rapid fire. Stocks had 20% returns last year, and they're starting off in the green now. But there's always a threat lurking around the corner. Up next, Morgan Stanley Investment Management's chief global strategist gives us his biggest risk for stocks this year. Welcome back to The Exchange. COVID cases at a record high, a worker shortage, rising deficits, high inflation numbers. Those are the typical market risks we hear about. But my next guest says they're not the ones he's most focused on. He just released his top economic trends to watch this year. And there are a few things he'd add to that list, like greenflation. Let's welcome in Rashir Sharma. He's chief global strategist at Morgan Stanley Investment Management, also the author of The Ten Rules of Successful Nations. Rashir, it's great to have you here today. So what would some of your top concerns be? Thanks, Kelly. Yeah, I think that, as you pointed out, that greenflation is a concern for me because we're all very obsessed with this tech-oriented world, but some basics are being forgotten, which is that to build this new uh, tech world and also um, as we get more concerned about climate change, we still need to use a lot of commodities to get there. And um, what I think is sort of underappreciated is how underinvested we are in some of these uh, 
major commodities. Um, and it's not just oil, it's got to do with copper, it's got to do with aluminium. And the underinvestment in these commodities over the last five or even 10 years has been pretty significant. And yet demand is expected to only increase for some of these commodities as we look to build a new green infrastructure. So yes, greenflation remains one of my top concerns yeah. uh, going into the new year. And I should say, while it may be a concern for you and a problem for end customers, it could be a good thing for people who want to lay their bets on commodities because you are seeing significant price appreciation. Overall, some of the other concerns you have, I mean, baby bust is one that underpins everything that we talk about from the debt and deficit situation to the worker shortage. Explain how you think that could be a, a risk this year. Well, I, I think that this has been one of the big surprises of the pandemic, uh, which is the fact that we've had a baby bust, which is that people thought that staying indoors, maybe we'll have a pickup in birth rates. Instead, we, uh, we've had a decline in birth rates in most major economies around the world, and China's uh, leading that decline in some ways. I think this has significant growth implications uh, because the world's labor force in many countries was already shrinking before the pandemic, and that shrinkage has been accelerated by the pandemic. Now, remember that the main reason the global economy grew at a very fast pace in the post-World War II period was because we had a baby boom. Uh, there was a massive demographic dividend that the world reaped uh, after the Second World War. That demographic dividend is over for most countries in the world. There are more than 50 countries now where the labor force is shrinking. That number was just 17 at the start of a century. So a major trend which presages slower economic growth in the decade ahead. All right, one more, because we can only handle three pieces of bad news at once. You know, So let's right. talk about the productivity paradox. This is important. Again, it underpins everything. We saw a surge in the U.S. last year, but you're saying it's already petered out, and it was only the U.S. where we saw that. Yeah. You know, like um, we saw a big surge in productivity, and a lot of people thought that something uh, was going on here in terms of increased digitization, which is true. But I think that the data is just not bearing that out because usually you do tend to see a big surge in productivity at the start of an economic recovery, and that tends to fade. And that's the pattern which we are again following only just more quickly because people seem to be working longer hours from home, but uh, not producing uh, anything significantly more. So I think that that is another concern. Now, this is not all a gloomy picture, but since we have picked on three concerns, the productivity paradox is something which really is something I find very disconcerting, given the uh, kind of technological advances we are seeing um, in the world. Yeah. Rashir, thank you. We'll leave it there. Rashir Sharma joining me from Morgan Stanley Investment Institute. Uh, let's meanwhile note that Apple just hit the $3 trillion mark in total market cap. This is the first $3 trillion company trading in the U.S., probably trading in the world. Just a couple of years after we crossed a trillion dollars for the first time, it's now doubled and tripled that level. 182.86 was the place. We're about 10 cents below that level. We did puncture through it just a moment ago. A 2.9% rally for Apple today. There was some good news over the weekend, some positive analyst commentary, uh, helping it to get across that mark. Dominic Chu, tell me your thoughts here. I'm watching it right now. I'm, I'm trying, I'm looking 
on my screen, just kind of taking a look at some of the fundamentals about it. I mean, we're talking about we talked in the last segment about some of the reasons why people own it. The dividend yield is maybe one of them. It, it's not really a huge dividend overall, even though we know that they're one of the biggest buy, buy, buyers back, I guess, of their stocks and, and also dividend payers out there in terms of to- total dollar amount. But at half a percent yield, it's kind of difficult. I mean, this idea right now that the high was 182.88 almost kind of makes you feel like there were some folks out there just wanted to kind of push it up to that level just to say that we've gotten it there. And then we backed off a little bit. Still, though, if you take a look at the relative importance of where Apple has been over the course of the last, say, decade and then kind of where it is right now, it's always assumed kind of a leadership position. But up until now, the idea of having a $3 trillion company in this marketplace was bound to happen, and it might have been Apple. The real, the real question for many traders and investors is just how quickly he can get there. You mentioned before, Kelly, how quickly it got to the $1 trillion to $2 trillion mark, and now to the $3 trillion mark. It just goes to show you just how much appetite there has been over the course of the last at least five to six years for it. Now, what you're seeing right now in the chart is that kind of march towards that $3 trillion. And like we said, Back in August 2018, it was the one trillion, and then it was a year later that it became, or two years later that it got to two trillion, and here we are now at three. So, if this is a situation where Apple has become this kind of generation's darling, what does it then mean for the future of Apple? We've seen many companies over the course of the last 50 years take up that mantle, take up that figurehead, that standard, become the standard bearer of the market, only to see them kind of top out where they were and maybe start to fall off a little bit. How long is it going to be before Apple gets there, if it ever does? That's the reason why this $3 trillion mark is such an interesting point, milestone in the, in the overall narrative, Kelly, yeah. for what's happening with Apple. I'm just looking at Dan Ives' note from yesterday where he's writing, demand looks strong for the iPhone cycle. Based on our supply chain checks, we believe demand is outstripping supply for Apple by 12 million units in the December quarter. And he goes on to say Apple is on pace to become the first $3 trillion market cap tw- uh, company in 2022. We are talking about this having taken place now on the first trading day of the year, Dom. Pretty, tra- pretty yeah. incredible. I mean, it, it's incredible, but but not because of... Uh, so it was, call it maybe five, seven years ago, right? This notion that whenever we talked about Apple and, and the driver really for the valuation, it was really about the hardware, right? It was about iPhone sales. And for good reason. It's the biggest driver of sales and profitability for the company and has been for several years now. But to the point of our rapid fire conversation with Nancy Tangler and Tim Seymour, there is so much more of an emphasis from investors these days about that services business, about the recurring revenue that it, that it can generate without having to sell another handset because it has such a big installed base. If that is going to be the reason why some investors are putting a premium multiple on a certain aspect of the business, it's one of the reasons why, you know, in the past we had kind of talked about some of the margin pressures around Amazon and everything else. But then there was a point at which the narrative for Amazon turned towards the growth of Amazon Web Services and cloud computing. We're at a stage right now where Apple has to come has to become maybe a, a, a story about whether or not investors really believe that the services business is going to grow fast enough, Kelly, for them to justify that kind of evaluation. Yeah, I mean, again, I don't know. I'm, Saudi Aramco is the only company in the world that at least at two trillion, we could say, you know, was rivaling Apple at three trillion. I have to imagine they're in a class of their own. I, I think that you're right. <laughs> <laughs>
<laughs> Dom, thanks for all your time today. We appreciate sure. it, Dom Chu. Speaking of trillion-dollar companies, Tesla now firmly above the trillion-dollar mark with a strong rally to kick off the year today. Elon Musk congratulating Tesla employees for strong deliveries in the fourth quarter. Should be thanking them for making him 10 or 11 percent richer, and he was already doing pretty well to begin with. Let's bring in Phil LeBeau for more on what those delivery figures mean for Tesla and how much they could end up delivering this year, Phil, because I'm hearing some huge numbers now. Yeah, you're starting to hear people say things like, Oh, over 1.5 million, close to 2 million. We'll talk about that in a little bit. Let me give you the numbers in terms of what they delivered in the fourth quarter and then for all of last year. Both were better than expected. And I want to show you the annual sales growth that Tesla's deliveries have shown over really the last 10 years. And look at the growth from 2020 to 2021, 936,000 vehicles delivered last year, up 87% compared to 2020. Now, 95% of the vehicles delivered were Models 3 and Model Y. That was by design. That's how it has been for the last several quarters. They are expanding their Model Y production in 2022. And that's why so many people are very optimistic about what they might see this year when it comes to deliveries. Here's the consensus. 1.34 million vehicles. That's according to Faxit. That's what the analysts are expecting. By the way, if they hit that, it'll be an increase of 43%. And a lot of people are saying, wait a second, shouldn't it be higher? Shouldn't it be growth of maybe 50 or 60%? Which is why you're starting to hear people say, hey, you've got the Texas and Berlin plants opening. Maybe they get close to 2 million. Which brings up Adam Jonas from Morgan Stanley. He put out a note today and he said, at this point, we describe 2 million as a stretch target but one that looks far more realistic following 4Q deliveries. We'll find out more about where Tesla is in terms of its expectations a little later on this month or early next month when the company reports its Q4 results. By the way, Deutsche Bank, RBC, JP Morgan, all out today with new estimates for the fourth quarter results that are expected uh, to be very strong, especially with gross margins, Kelly. That's the area that you're going to see a lot of emphasis as the analyst notes start to look into what we can expect in those Q4 results. And then increasingly, the focus will be, what do we think will happen in 2022 with deliveries? Yeah, I, we used to have a game, me and my husband, where we'd poke each other and be like, Tesla, Tesla, you know, just like trying to find them on the street. But they're so ubiquitous <laughs> now. It's, there's no point in playing the game anymore. Phil, thanks very much. We appreciate it. Or Phil LeBeau reporting from Chicago. Airlines are being hit with a double whammy, forced to cancel flights due to staffing shortages and bad weather. Who knows what Omicron will do to demand the spring and summer, but at least for today, the stocks are rallying. So after two years of bad luck and bad news, will the skies finally clear in 2022? And the big story of the day, Apple crossing the $3 trillion market cap level, first U.S. company to do that. Got two pennies above that high water mark. It's just below that level right now. Much more coming up on Power Lunch. Stay with us. Twenty twenty one was a tough year for the airlines. It seemed like the travel recovery was on track and then Delta hit and then Omicron hit. And now labor shortages and severe weather have caused airlines to cancel more than 13,000 scheduled flights just last week. But today the stocks are actually doing pretty well. They're rebounding in the range of three to four percent. Joining me now is MCAM Partners Executive Director Connor Cunningham. Connor, you just should I say upgraded the stocks or kind of differentiated your picks today. Thanks for joining me. Yeah, oh, thanks for having me, Kelly. Uh, yeah, we 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 upgraded a, a United and downgraded a couple of the other stocks. Um, yeah, it's been a it's been a challenging start to 2022. Uh, you know, operational issues and, and staffing shortages are 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 a big issue in the near term. 
Um, however, you can still kind of paint a, a relatively positive demand picture come the summer as we kind of get a move past the peak cases right now. Um, so we're still relatively optimistic about the, the recovery this year. We expect a modest profit uh, uh, from the industry as a whole and just a, an overall better uh, mix shift, um, you know, with with business travel and international kind of coming back. Right. You're looking year. at those as key catalysts for Delta and United, especially Delta, your top pick. You upgraded United. How much how far are the airlines, generally speaking, below their all time highs? So in in terms of, of, of demand, I think is what you're what you're asking on the business or travel the side. Price, so, yeah. 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 So. Um, in, in general, you know, I would just say that uh, you know, business travel is down about 50% exiting 2021. Um, you know, we expect that to gradually improve. We're not expecting a, a full recovery 2022 by any by any stretch, but but a potential full recovery come 2023. That that itself should drive. I would I would I would expect overall stock movement uh, this year and next. Uh, again, it's it's more of a better mix shift than anything else, which uh, will be positive for pricing overall. Um, I've been saying to people that I've been talking to today, like if you haven't bought your ticket prices, if you haven't bought your tickets now, uh, it's a, it's probably a good time to start thinking about it because it's hmm. going to get expensive next year. So American is one of the stocks that has the toughest balance sheet, but you actually think has the most potential upside from the recovery this year. Yeah, I, I would just say that that American itself, uh, its balance sheet can't get much worse. Um, you know, in the near term, they've added a, a quite a few, quite a bit of debt um, over the years as they've refleeted. Their 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 refleeting needs are, are at the end, so um, they should start to use the excess free cash flow to, uh, to start to pay down debt from here. Uh, they do have a balance sheet story uh, relative to some of the others, so uh, should only get better from here, in in my view. How much upside for the stocks do you foresee for names like Delta and United, or even the ones that you say have compelling cost stories like Alaska and Allegiant? Yeah, we're, we're thinking potentially 20 to 30% upside this year. Uh, really, again, it's going to come down to how much of the, the pandemic headwinds kind of ease uh, throughout the summer. Again, you know, come summertime frame, we should be past uh, Omicron at that point. So, you know, should should be a decent outlook for, for the group uh, during their big earning period. So, um, you know, there, there is potential, a significant upside this year, I would say. All right. Connor, thanks for joining me today. I appreciate it. Thank you. And like you said, go book your tickets now. <laughs> Prices are going up. Connor Cunningham from MKM Partners. That does it for The Exchange, everybody. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx.